And we give you praise this morning, Lord Jesus, for the finished work and the fact that when you rose from the dead, you validated and proved that everything you'd accomplished at Calvary took effect. It did what you and the Father intended it to do, paid for all of our sins, made a way for us to have union with and communion with you. We thank you for that. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You may have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we're happy to have you here with us. We are a fellowship of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. A fellowship is a, a community of people who want to share their lives with each other and want to share their faith mutually with each other in a loving relationship. And that's what we strive to be. And as a fellowship of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we devote ourselves continually. We're addicted to this. We devote ourselves continually to the teaching of the Word of God and also to fellowship. We create as many opportunities as we possibly can for believers to get together in homes and in small groups and in public meetings. And we also dedicate ourselves. We're addicted to the breaking of bread through meals together and through the receiving of the Lord's Supper as often as we can on Wednesday night every week. Uh, we do that. And then uh, also to prayers. We are addicted to praying and seeking the Lord together and individually. And, and so being part of us, we hope that you will all be addicted to those things as well. Because that's really what the body of Christ is all about. And, and those are the things that the apostolic church did. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church, who is the one who builds his church, that he added to the church daily, such as we're being saved. That's what he did as a result of them just gathering together and just being his people. That's what we want to do. First of all, we want to be his people. A friend of mine used to tell me, we are human beings, not human doings. So the Lord is more interested in our being with him than he is what we do for him, although the doing for him is the outgrowth of our being in him, if you know what I mean. So there's so much there that we want to just focus on. And so with that in mind, I'd like to invite you guys, especially if you've never been out on Tuesday night, and I wasn't trying to lead into a commercial pitch here, but, <laughs> but uh, seriously, if you guys haven't been here on Tuesday night, we gather for an hour and a half, as the ladies do at the same time. It's a short period of time. doesn't take that much of an investment of your life, but I can guarantee you that the material that the ladies are going through and the material that the men are going through is potentially dramatically life-changing if one applies themselves to it. So really, I encourage you to come on out and be part of that Acts 242 experience with us on Tuesday night, and on Wednesday night, and whenever other night we happen to be gathered together. Take advantage as much as you possibly can. Revelation chapter 19 this morning. The title of this message, Alleluia, for the Lord God Omnipotent Reigns. I, it was almost, you know, it would be a blasphemous thing almost for me to have named it any other thing. I had to take it right out of the text because it's such an incredible passage. Revelation 19 Beginning in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! And her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were a voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. <sighs> wow. What a passage. Now, last week, in anticipation of this week, I announced that this would be the week of the second coming. 
What I meant by that is that we would be going into chapter 19 of Revelation, in which is uh, detailed the second coming of Jesus Christ. Great idea, though. And I was praying for the Lord to come back this last week. He didn't come, so maybe this week. Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus, right? It's, it's a reality that we who are believers in Christ believe in it with all our hearts. We believe that Jesus is coming again. We believe it not on the basis of some promise that was made out in thin air, but we believe it on the basis of the promise of the Lord Jesus himself, who died and who rose from the dead. And I'm prepared to listen to somebody who does stuff like that. And he died and rose from the dead, and he said, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. So we who are believers in Christ believe with all of our hearts the promise, Jesus indeed is going to come again. But this morning, we're only going to be looking at the first 10 verses of Revelation 19, so we'll have to wait for the second coming at least until next week. So uh, we'll get that uh, next week, the actual physical second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. But as we looked at this passage and as we read these first six verses, what struck me, one of the things that struck me among many things this week, is the incredible attention in heaven given over the things that have happened or will happen on the earth. And so the attention given to the earth and to the fact that there's a redemption of the earth and there's salvation for the earth and there is the Lord God omnipotent reigning over the earth. All of this attention uh, toward this little celestial ball that's hanging out there in space that's part of this particular solar system and part of this particular Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy among hundreds of billions of galaxies in an expanding universe, and yet God's attention is focused on this little ball. You know, there is a principle, a scientific principle, that backs up the idea that God does give his primary attention to the things that happen on this little ball. It's called the anthropic principle. And it's a very important one. Uh, I've was reading some things on it this week. This will kind of blow your mind. Just the idea that God has really designed earth for human life. And because human life is the primary uh, possession and the greatest of all of God's creation, human life is the prize of his creation. It's greater than anything else. So he values it. And so this whole little ball made up because uh, God designed human life to live here. Oxygen comprises 21% of the atmosphere. If it were 25% of the atmosphere, fires would erupt all over the place. If it were 15%, human beings would suffocate. And then speaking about our solar system, these are just factoids. I'm not a scientist. I'm just repeating what I'm reading here. If Jupiter wasn't in its current orbit, we would be bombarded with space material because Jupiter's gravitational field is like a cosmic vacuum cleaner that attracts asteroids and comets that if they hadn't been attracted by the strength of Jupiter's gravitational field around it, those asteroids and comets would hit where? It hit planet Earth, and we'd be wiped out. Another factoid, if the atmospheric discharge, lightning, rate were greater, there would be too much fire destruction. If there were less lightning, there would be too little nitrogen mixing into the soil to uh, support Uh, the growth of the things that we need uh, to survive. And there are so many other things. This one's amazing, though. The average distance between stars in this 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, the average distance of stars is 30 trillion miles between stars. How far is 30 trillion miles? Well, if you got in the space shuttle that travels at 17,000 miles an hour, it would take 201,450 years to travel from one star to the next. And there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, 100 billion plus. Well, if the distance is just a little bit different, if the speed was a little bit different, if light was a little bit different, then of course, the earth wouldn't be able to survive, and so on and so on and so on. God has designed this place because he wanted to have a place for human beings to live. When he made everything, and the days of creation are detailed in Genesis chapter 1, after the first day, 
God saw that it was good. After the second day, God saw that it was good. After the third day, it was good. Fourth day, it was good. Fifth day, it was good. Sixth day, which is the day in which he created man, God saw his creation and said it's very good. Because it was on that day that God made man in his own image, and the image of God made he him, male and female made he them. And he breathed by his nostrils, into their nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living being. And it's for human beings that Christ died, and it's for human beings that the Lord has paid so much attention to what goes on on this planet. Make you feel valuable or insignificant? Kind of depends, doesn't it, on how you look at it. Insignificant in the sense that we're so small. And we need to see ourselves that way, but very significant in the sense that the Lord would direct so much of his attention toward us through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, John starts out in writing, and he says, after these things. After these things, the Greek phrase, two Greek words, metatauta. And it's a key phrase in the book of Revelation. It actually makes up the outline of the book in Revelation 119. Write the things which... You have seen, write the things which are, write the things which will be after these things. And then after the church age, we see, after these things I looked, and a door standing open in heaven. And now after the things of the churches, the church is in heaven, Revelation 4.1. After the first six of the seal judgments, Revelation 7.1 says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And then after these things, after the sealing of the 144,000, John saw a great multitude of people which no one could number of every nation, people, tongue, and tribe who have been redeemed from the earth. And then after the destruction of religious and commercial Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, after these things, we see in verse 1 of chapter 19, John hears this loud voice of the great multitude in heaven. Why do we point this out? We point out the phrase metatauta after these things because there is a chronology in the book of Revelation. There, there is a systematic unfolding of the things that God has revealed. It's not a random collection of prophetic ideas that make no sense. Things happen in sequence. There is the uh, presence of Christ that John saw. There is the Church age, Revelation 2 and 3. There's the church in heaven, Revelation 4 and 5. There's the outpouring of the seven seals in Revelation 6 through 19. And after these things, after the uh, tribulation period is about to come to a close, then John sees in chapter 19 the second coming, the visible return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That's how we understand the book. We understand it in the sequence that God gave it. It wasn't intended to be a mystery to us. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, not the hiding of Jesus Christ or the obscuring of Jesus Christ. God wants these things to be clear to us, and so he made them clear to us. So keep that in mind as you read through the whole book of Revelation. And then we see this word, Alleluia, in verse 1. It comes from the Hebrew, Hallelujah, praise ye Yah, is what it means. Interesting, though, this is the first time in the New Testament that Alleluia is found, this word. And it appears uh, four times in the New Testament, all of them in Revelation, and all of them in these six verses that we've just read. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. Praise ye Yah, praise ye Yah. Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord. So this is a lot of worship going on in heaven over what God has done and over what he is about to do. And there are things that are ascribed to the Lord in verse 1. Salvation belonged to him. Glory belongs to him. Honor belongs to him. And power belongs to him. And these are the things that we sing about the Lord, and these are the things we sing of the Lord, because they have to do with what God has done, and they have to do with who he is. God has saved, he's the Savior. That's who he is. God is glorious, he receives glory. God is honorable, he receives honor. God is all-powerful, he is ascribed honor to him.
And these are the things that are said of him and to him in heaven. And it's a wonderful part of our worship even now. Now the reason for this ascribing these things to him is in verse 2. For true and righteous are his judgments. This is the reason for this great worship. True and righteous are his judgments. They're true because they're based on truth. They're righteous because they operate according to God's strict standard of righteousness, which is his own nature. God always does the right thing. He always thinks the right thing. He always acts in the right way. He always decides in the right way. He never makes a mistake. He's not going to make a single blunder in the judgment of the universe or of any human being. He will always be right because his nature is right. He is intrinsically right. He is eternally right. He is infinitely right. And he cannot make a mistake because of who he is and we worship him for these things now he uh, his judgments are true and righteous John points out and the voice declares because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and avenged on her the blood of God's servants that had been shed by her so the great harlot has been judged that's the reason for the great worship And why was she judged? She committed two great crimes against heaven. This harlot did. The first great crime is that she corrupted the earth with her fornication. As a harlot, she used her charms. And she used her seduction to seduce people to ignore God and to reject the offer of salvation which is in Jesus Christ. That's what the harlot did. The harlot devoted herself, this false religious system, this false commercial system, the harlot devoted herself to seducing human beings to ignore God and forget God and to specifically reject the clear offer of salvation by grace through faith, which is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so she deserves judgment because of this. This is a horrible offense and crime against heaven. Very much like the the harlot described in Proverbs, the seventh chapter. Solomon writes about this harlot and the, and the people that are seduced by her. And here's, he sees through the window of his house, he's looking out and he sees among the simple people. He, he, he looks among the young men. He sees this young man that passes by the harlot's house. And he takes the path to her house in the evening time. And there she is, and she's dressed like a harlot, and she has the attitude of a harlot, and she lurks like a harlot does, and she catches him and kisses him and makes promises to him and, and, and steals him away and seduces him to commit uh, horrible acts with her. Well, that's what this religious Babylon uh, has done. That's what this commercial Babylon has done, this false religious system. It has seduced human beings against God. But I love another proverb that speaks to young men as well and to married men, and it's a picture of our relationship with the Lord, Uh, but it tells men who are married to drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well, and specifically, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. In other words, just love on your wife. Enjoy the wife you have and just let her be a source of great pleasure for you, the Lord says to married men. And so here we have a relationship with God. We're to let him be the greatest source of the greatest kind of pleasure for us. Why do we need the world? Why do we need a false religious system? Why do we need lies? Why do we need to operate according to the flesh? These things are unnecessary if we're really in love with the Lord Jesus. And if he's the one that is our most prized possession, let's be satisfied with him at all times. That's what the Bible would say. And any other thing is idolatry. And it's very interesting, the last verse in 1 John, little children, flee from idolatry. How important a warning is that in these days in which we live? So the harlot has been judged, and she deserved every ounce of her judgment. Verse 3, and again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rises up forever. Eternity will 
mean that there will be a reminder of her judgment. The smoke from her destruction constantly rises up. And then another amen and alleluia in verse 4. The four and twenty elders and the four living creatures. So the human representatives that are there in heaven before the throne. The ones that have already cast down their throne, their crowns before the throne and said, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. These same 24 elders and these four living creatures who are angelic beings, they're cherubim. And they are saying these things. They're saying, Amen, Alleluia. In other words, so be it. Praise ye Yah. So be it. Now, another thing I want to point out here. I want you to notice in verse 1, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying these things. And then in verse 3, Alleluia. And then in verse 4, Amen and Alleluia. And then in verse 6, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters. The point is, is that worship in heaven is loud. It's loud. Amen. So be it. It's loud. And it's focused on God. And it's focused on His works. And it's focused on His nature. And it's obviously very enthusiastic. Brothers and sisters, let's get ready for heaven and learn how to do that now. Amen. Let's make it loud. Let's. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Let's make it loud. Let's worship the Lord loudly, enthusiastically, putting all of our hearts in it. You know, there's some people they say, well, you know, I'm going to come for the teaching part, but I don't quite get the singing part. Hey, listen, I don't want to be disrespectful of you or rain on, on your parade or anything, but it's not just the singing part. It's worship. It's the worship of a living God. It's, it's, it's a corporate phenomenon that is unlike any other. That, that we can experience to gather together with the believers and say these things we're saying to him in the presence of other believers uh, that have uh, given their lives to serve him. It's exciting. Well, that's what heaven is going to be like. And there's a voice in verse 5. And this voice has a commandment. Praise our God, all ye his servants and those who fear him, both small and and great. It's a voice that has a command. God is to be praised. Praise our God, all his servants and those who fear him. So that's not just a command to those that are in heaven. That's a command to you and to me. Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him. It's a command. It's a command to praise the Lord. Not because the Lord needs it. Let's, please, let's be, be clear about that. Lord doesn't need our praise. It doesn't improve his day. Doesn't give him a greater sense of well-being or self-esteem. He doesn't need it. He's completely self-sufficient and satisfied within himself. But he knows that because he's created us in his image, when we worship him, when we praise him, something happens to us that he wants to happen to us. He loves us so much that he knows the highest single thing that you and I can do is to give praise to and worship to the Lord our God. Because as we do it, think through this with me, as we do it, we're proclaiming the nature and the character of God. The nature and the character of God, those are the thoughts, the largest thoughts we can think. They're the grandest thoughts we can think. And when they seep down into our souls... Our lives are changed. He loves us so much that he says, praise me, give worship to me, because he knows that's the greatest thing that will elevate us, we who are his kids. And he loves to love us. He loves to bless us. Worship is, for, is designed for us, although it's aimed at him. Does that make sense? It's designed for us, although it's aimed at him. And that's the great blessing. So this is a command. Take this as a command. And take this throughout your week. Worship the Lord throughout your week. Give time to the praise of the Lord. And if you don't feel like your voice is good enough to do it yourself or maybe just in the shower, do it anyway. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. 
And, uh, and, and if, you want, if you need some help, then get some great praise and worship music and sing along with that great praise and worship music as you're driving around in your car. And, and it, it just is a wonderful thing. God has given us this gift of worship. And so he says, praise the Lord. Now, do we have the liberty to ignore this commandment? Well, God has given us freedom to make choices, hasn't he? But the heart that won't worship is the heart that becomes stale and it's the heart that doesn't fully appreciate the things that God has provided. You remember Michael, David's wife, daughter of Saul? She saw David there dancing before the Lord with all of his might, girded only with a loincloth around his waist, And he came in from that joyous procession as they brought the ark back into Jerusalem. And Michael despised David in her heart. She criticized him for his worship and the way that he just seemed to, in her mind, make a fool out of himself worshiping God. And you know what she lived with the rest of her life? She became barren. She never had a child. There's a barrenness that comes into our soul as a result of a refusal to worship God. It just happens because we're not rising up to the purpose for which we've been created. I suppose we can choose to refuse to worship God, but it does something to us that we don't want to have happen to us. There are consequences to it that aren't pretty consequences. They're not good consequences at all. I could tell my kids, you know, when they were growing up, I could say, you know, I want you to, I want you to take out the trash, I'd say to my son. Now, he could choose to do whatever he wants to with that command, but there are going to be consequences. He could actually do what a lot of Christians do when we hear Bible studies. He could go into his room and write it down. Father says, take out the trash. And then he could study it. You know, study the, the words there and just, okay, Father said, take out the trash and get into it and look at the meaning behind each word and parse the verbs and and uh, get into the grammar of it, maybe look into the Hebrew and the Greek, and, and now he really knows what I mean by that command, take out the trash. But I didn't give the command just so he could study it. I gave it to him so he would obey it, to actually do what I said, and, and literally walk out of the house and go to the side yard and take the trash barrel and put it out to the curb. That's what I wanted him to do. And until he did it, all of that studying wasn't going to do him any good. So the Lord says, praise our God, you his people. (laughs) There it is. Amen. And then the final alleluia in verse 6. And this is the final and the most profound reason why we should praise the Lord. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. The Lord Kyrios, God Theos, omnipotent, overruling over everything, able to do anything. Nothing is too hard for him. If you believe Genesis 1-1, you believe this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you get that down, then anything else that you might want God to do or imagine him doing is a piece of cake. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That establishes his all-powerful nature. He is what theologians call omnipotent. That is, he is powerful over everything. He is completely powerful. And he reigns. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. He rules and he reigns. Now, right now, it doesn't seem like he's reigning. It seems like he's lost his grip on the universe. Well, not maybe the universe, but upon great portions of our planet. But let's not be fooled by that. There's a great Old Testament picture of what's really going on today. Remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. And while Saul was on the throne, when he backslid, and when he became a fool and he rejected God's commandments, the Lord raised up another king to take his place and anointed David, the son of Jesse, in the presence of his brothers. 
and poured the horn of oil on his head and said, this is the one, this is the the new king. And David was anointed king, but Saul was the one that was still sitting on the throne. David was anointed king, but Saul was the one that was still sitting on the throne. And until the day that he died, Saul still had say and wait within Israel. But David was patient. He endured Saul's rantings and ravings and attacks upon him. And, and, uh, but eventually, there, the, the day came when Saul was killed in battle and David assumed his rightful place. It's a picture. It's a picture of what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. When Jesus Christ, through the cross, destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, who destroyed principalities and powers and made an open show of them, triumphing over them in the cross, and then rising from the dead, Jesus Christ became the king to reign over this little planet, this little orb. He's the king. But Saul, the god of this world, the temporary deity that runs most things, god of this world, the devil, he's still sitting on the throne. He's got some sway. He's got energy. He's got the last word in a lot of present-day manners. But let's not be mistaken about this. Jesus reigns. And it's just a matter of him coming again and taking up the whole thing. And he, he's going to do that someday. And possibly very, very soon. So that's really the deal. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. He ab- absolutely does. For thousands of years of human history, Satan has reigned. But he was defeated. Christ has been anointed as Lord and, Lord and Messiah. And he's going to soon return and accept his throne. Do you believe that? This is the basis of Peter's sermon. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ that day. He concluded his sermon, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And it says when they heard that, they were pricked to the heart. They said, what should we do about this? This is amazing. Because that's exactly the truth. God made this Jesus, whom the Jews of that first century era crucified both Lord and Christ. Let's move on to verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give, glo- give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of of prophecy. So back to verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Why is there so much gladness and rejoicing and giving of God glory in heaven? Because the marriage of the land has come. And the bride made herself ready. This is something that all of the angelic hosts and all of those that have preceded us into heaven have been waiting for this day when the marriage of the Lamb arrives. It's going to be the greatest day in heaven's history up to that point. The marriage of the Lamb. The bride unveiled. We who have chosen to refuse the seduction of Babylon... We who have believed in the Lamb who was slain. We've trusted Him. We've accepted His marriage proposal. And we've been married to Him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are married to Him. Romans 7.4 You become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That you might be married to another. Dead to the law. 
by the body of Christ that you might be married to another. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul said, I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. I betroth to you one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. When Paul was talking about marriage and the wonderful marriage relationship in Ephesians 5, he made the comment, he said, you know, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they two should become one flesh. And he said, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's what I'm really talking about here. This earthly marriage model, it's a picture of a heavenly reality. The relationship between Jesus, the Messiah, and his bride, the church. And in John, the 14th chapter, Jesus told his disciples that in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you might be also. And as we'll see in a moment, those verses were the picture of a typical first century Jewish wedding ceremony. The betrothal is completed. The binding arrangement that promises a wedding, only breakable by divorce. And then Jesus goes away, like the bridegroom would go away. And he would prepare the home, and he'd prepare the setup for the eventual marriage. And the bride, on her part, was to be preparing herself, getting herself to be ready. Knowing a general time frame of when her groom would come and receive her to go to the wedding itself, but not knowing exactly when it was going to be, she was going to have to be ready for that event. And so she would prepare and she would always be ready for that announcement, Behold, the bridegroom comes! Always ready, always waiting. And then the bridegroom would come with his attendants and bring her back to himself, back to his own house. And then they would celebrate with a tremendous wedding and a tremendous uh, wedding celebration, the marriage supper. And that's exactly what the picture is in John 14. It's exactly what the picture is here. Now the thing is, we who are believers in Christ have been married to him in this age, although we've never even seen him in the flesh. We've not yet personally, physically met our groom. But that's not a stumbling block. Remember what Jesus told Thomas on the night of his resurrection. Or actually one week later when Thomas finally was able to show up and finally be convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet have believed. That would include us. And in 1 Peter, it talks about rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. Who, uh, even though we haven't seen him, yet believing in him, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, even though we've not seen him. So the fact that we've not seen Jesus in the flesh as yet, does not mean at all that we are somehow excluded from the fullness of joy. On the contrary, there's a specific beatitude about you and me who have believed in him in this age. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. That's a beatitude. Be blessed. You've not seen him yet you've believed him. You've trusted in him even though you've not seen him with your eyes. But we've seen him with the eye of faith. And we're growing closer to him every day. And we're learning to love him more and more. And we know that he exists and we know that he's real and he'll never fail. And he's with us always, even to the end of the age. These are the things we know. Even the first century disciples that had seen him weren't allowed to cling to him. To keep him here on planet earth. He said, no, I've got to go away. And it's to your advantage that I go away. If I go away, 
I'm going to ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth. So it's better for you that I go away. And remember that uh, day of his, his resurrection? And he saw Mary in the garden and she thought that he was the gardener. And didn't recognize him at first. And then he turned to Jesus, or she tur- he turned to her and said, Mary, in the way that only Jesus could say a person's name, Mary. And she knew who it was immediately when he said Mary. And she turned and looked at him and saw that it was Jesus. And so she just wrapped her arms around him. You got away from me before, but you're not getting away from me again. No way, no how. Not going to happen. But Jesus said to her, In the King James, it's unfortunate. Don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. But literally, it's stop clinging to me or don't cling to me any longer. You can't cling to me now. You can't hold me here. I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to go tell the other disciples and I've got to go to my Father in heaven and I've got to go pray that the Father would send the Spirit to the church and I've got to run things from heaven. I'm not going to run them from down here. I'm going to run things from heaven. i got to go, Mary. And so even those first century disciples, they weren't able to hang on to him. So we're all in the same boat. We in the first century believers, we're all walking by faith in an invisible Savior who is very visible by the Holy Spirit and in his promise to be with us. Amen? Well, in verse 19, verse 7, uh, verse 7 of 19, it says, His wife has made herself ready. How did she make herself ready? Verse 8 gives the answer. It was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. That was how she made herself ready. It was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. In other words, these are the words of grace. What does the gospel message say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right? So anyone who is a believer, and we've said this many times before, anyone who is a believer has only God to thank. Anyone who finds himself in heaven has only God to thank. If anyone finds himself in hell, he has only himself to blame. Okay, so we have only God to thank. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It's been granted to us to be arrayed in fine linen. And then the fine linen that we've been given changes our nature. And then we do righteous acts. But the righteous acts don't save us. They're simply the result of our salvation. They're the natural byproduct of being saved. They're not the thing that causes the salvation. These are grace words here. The Jews in John 6, they wanted to know from Jesus, what should we do that we might work the works of God? Remember what Jesus told them? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's the work of God, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God has sent. That's the great work of God. Then he said to me, write, verse 9, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the marriage supper. Before this whole marriage supper took place, first of all, there were the arrangements that took place prior to the betrothal. The betrothal, the closest cultural equivalent we have, is an engagement, but it was legally binding in Jewish culture. If you were betrothed to someone, that meant that it could only be broken, that arrangement, by divorce. And only the groom, or the groom-to-be, could break the relationship. Only the groom could ask for a certificate of divorce and break the betrothal. The bride was not able to. She had no legal right to do so. And so... The betrothal, the arrangements for the betrothal took place. The father usually selected a bride for his son. That's what our father has done. Our father in heaven has selected a bride for his son. 
And this is how it works. Ephesians 1.4. We've been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. The father's selection of a bride for his son was a selection that was made in Christ. Now you're going to have to focus on this. The selection the father made for a bride for his son was that those who were in Christ would be the bride. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So if someone comes to be in Christ, then they are among the chosen. So God made it very specific. I'm not going to accept everyone as a bride for my son. Only those that are in my son will be part of this bride. Only those that are in Christ will be of the chosen. That doesn't exclude anybody. That only excludes the person who doesn't want to come to Christ and who doesn't want to be in him. It's the only person that it excludes at all. Everyone else may come, and anyone can come if they want to. So the father would, would select a, a bride for his son, and then a new contract, a legal contract, was entered into. And the groom promises to love and care for the bride and to give himself for her. He promises to pay a price for her, a dowry, an appropriate gift, just in case something doesn't work out. And the bride promises to give herself in exchange, to give herself back to him, to give her life. That's exactly what God has done in salvation. God the Father decided those who were going to be the bride for his son would be those that believed in his son. Okay, The price that was paid to secure the bride was the the precious blood of his son, the blood of Christ. Jesus died for us. And our response? To believe. To believe and to commit our life to him. So now that comes to the betrothal. It's the time of being set apart. That man set apart to that woman. That woman set apart to that man. They're going to culminate the marriage eventually. And it's a time when they set themselves apart to prepare for the ultimate marriage covenant. And betrothal is typically a year or so in length. Again, it was so binding that they would need a religious divorce in order to annul the contract, and only the husband could initiate that. The bride could not. Now, in our case, the father sets it up, The contract is entered into. The new covenant is embraced and accepted. Who can break that arrangement? Only the son. And it says he won't. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. Neither will anyone snatch them out of my hand. We can't break it. Only he can. Interesting, isn't it? And so the betrothal is entered into. There's a passage in the Old Testament in Hosea that talks about Yahweh's betrothing himself to Israel. And he says, I'll betroth to you, me, uh, you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you'll know the Lord. Speaking to Israel, this is the relationship I have with you. You're my bride. And it looks like Israel has reneged on her marital promises by refusing to believe in their Messiah, Jesus. But that doesn't stop God's promises. Remember, the bride couldn't break the covenant. Only the groom could. And Yahweh is not going to break his covenant with Israel. He promised an eternal relationship with them. It's going to be forever, he said in Hosea 2.19. I will betroth you to me forever. So what we have now is we have a Jewish Messiah, Jesus. The gospel went to the Jew first. 
and many Jews in the first century and subsequently have believed, and then also to the Greek. So the body of Christ is made up of Jew who believe in their Messiah and Gentile who have been grafted into faith in their Messiah. One body, Jew and Gentile. Not a separate entity, not separate from the covenant God made with Israel at all, but a completion of it, a fulfillment of it. We are fulfilling in the church the covenant God made with Israel, not replacing Israel at all, but simply fulfilling it. And we who are Gentiles, non-Jews, we've been grafted in to this native olive tree, we who are wild olive branches by nature, Romans 11. So we get to share in the blessings of Israel's Messiah in the church. And the bride of Christ is made up of Jew and Gentile who together are believing in Jesus as our Savior, our Lord, and our Messiah. So after the betrothal, eventually there was the marriage itself. The coming of the groom for the bride was going to be a surprise as far as the timing. And the bride was to be ready at any time. We have been exhorted to be ready at any time for the entire period of church history. And the church, ever since the very first apostolic church, has been waiting for Jesus to return has been looking for him to return, has been looking for the rapture to take place. We're looking as well. Now the bride knew the approximate timing, but the exact day or hour was uncertain. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour of my return. That doesn't mean he doesn't have all knowledge and that there's something that Jesus doesn't know. It simply means that he waits for the Father to send him. Okay, it's time. Go get your bride. And he's been waiting for that. I used to play football. My own vision of all of this is that Jesus is in a three-point stance, ready for the quarterback to say, hut. (laughs) That was an offensive lineman. (laughs) I just think that way, sorry. And then they, the husband brought her back. They consummated the marriage, and then there was a long and joyful celebration of that marriage supper. That's what's happening here in Revelation 19, 9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Beautiful, powerful. These are the true sayings of God. We look forward to that. It's going to be quite a celebration. And then in verse 10, John, for some reason, felt inclined to worship this angel. We're not told why, but he fell at his feet to worship this angel. But the angel said to him, See that you don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's interesting, isn't it? Every single time, Someone attempts to worship an angel. Every single time someone attempts to worship a human being in the apostolic or New Testament church, every single time it is rejected with great force. Because only God is worthy to be worshipped. He's the only one. Worship God. Now this is interesting from another point of view. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God. Remember when Jesus was dealing with the devil in the temptations? And the devil said, you know, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to the devil, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Only the Lord God shall be worshipped and only the Lord God should be served. So only the Lord God can be worshipped and only the Lord God should be served. But then we see in in Hebrews, the first chapter in verse 6, God the Father is speaking. Who's he speaking about? He's speaking about his son. And you know what God the Father says about his own son? He says, let all the angels of God worship him. 
And what does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus is God. Another one of those of many, many New Testament references that prove the divinity or the deity of Jesus Christ. Only God is worshipped, yet God himself says, worship Jesus. Worship the Son. Let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus Christ is God. And then this final verse, this final part of the verse, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. How important is this? Jesus said in Hebrews 10, 7, quoting from the Psalms, Behold, I've come, and the volume of the book it is written to me of me to do your will. And that verse means that in all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures speak about Jesus Christ, and the testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus Christ will do the will of his Father. Remember when Jesus met with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? And they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize, these two men didn't recognize who Jesus was after he was risen from the dead. Their eyes were sort of in a fog. They weren't able to recognize him. And so Jesus asked them, what are you troubled about? Have you, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? You haven't heard about the things that are going on in these days? They asked him, what What things? And then they said, well, but, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet, you know, how he came in Jerusalem, he was crucified. And some have puzzled us by saying he rose from the dead. And at that point, Jesus opened up the scriptures to them and showed them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. That would have been some Bible study. In the volume of the book, it is written of Jesus. In all of the scriptures, they speak to him. The testimony of of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. To me, this is a huge interpretive help to understanding the book of Revelation. Don't read the book of Revelation apart from Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't even read the judgment section, which we just came out of. Don't even read that apart from Jesus Christ. Find Jesus in the prophecies because he's there. I remember giving a class on the book of Daniel. I gave the class an assignment. Find Jesus in the book of Daniel. They were amazed at what they found there. And they found him in a lot of other places too, all over the Bible, Old and New Testaments alike. Find him in prophecy, he's there. Don't read the prophecy apart from Jesus Christ because it's all about him. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So next week we'll continue with chapter 19 and we'll see the actual physical second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. Our question right now though is, back to verse 7, his wife has made herself ready. Who is called? And who is ready? It's the person who's in Christ, for sure. Remember what Jesus talked about, the marriage supper that a certain king gave for his servants, for his son? And he sent them out to find guests to come to the wedding. And they all began to make excuses why they couldn't come. And then, okay, go out into the highways and the byways. And find as many people as you can. And so they were brought in to fill up the wedding hall. They said, you know, Master, we've brought in all these people from all these places, but there's still lots of room. Well, go out even more and get more. But there was a man that came in to that wedding feast, and he didn't have a wedding garment on. How did you get in here? He was asked. They took him. And he was rejected and ejected from that place. And he was the type of someone who is judged eternally because he didn't have a wedding garment on. Now our king, God himself, is making a feast for his son. We just read about it. Talked about it a little bit. Who's worthy to get in there? Those that have a wedding garment. 
What is the wedding garment? The wedding garment is none other than Jesus Christ himself and his righteousness. Your righteousness isn't enough. How pure would you have to be? How pure would I have to be in order to make it into heaven? We'd have to be perfect. There'd have to be no sin, no evil thoughts, ever. Past, present, and future. We would have to have the same kind of purity that Jesus himself has to make it into heaven on our own. Nobody qualifies. Absolutely nobody qualifies. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's the way it is. So how do we get in? Through Christ. Because the Bible says that the one who comes to Christ has become clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So God no longer will look at you just by seeing you. He will look at you, and what he sees is his son. He sees you clothed with his son and with the righteousness of his son. That's how he sees you. And until or unless a person has that righteousness of Christ, the gift of salvation, they can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. So who are the ones that were worthy? The ones that were worthy were those who came at the invitation. They accepted the offer of salvation. Those who were not worthy, those who didn't want to come. How about you? Do you want to come? Do you want to be in this marriage supper of the land? Do you want to, do you want to experience eternity in heaven? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want eternal life? Do you want your life changed? Do you want a purpose for living? Do you want joy in the midst of pain? Peace in the midst of trouble? Do you want these things? They're available in Christ. Every single one of them are your possession if you come to Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that you've given us to spend this time with you this morning in your word and in this passage. And we pray right now for anyone that hasn't yet made that decision or for anyone that's not sure whether they've made that decision. And we ask, Lord, that you'd make their calling and election sure for them. That they'd examine themselves to see whether or not they are in the faith. Do a work right now, we pray. We ask your Holy Spirit to work. And as we're in this attitude of prayer, I just want to ask you, if you want to receive this gift of eternal life and you're not sure where you're going when you die, you're not sure whether you've made peace with God, you're not sure if you've been reconciled to him, and you want to be sure, you want this forgiveness of sins, you want your life to be changed, by him. Would you please just raise your hand right where you're seating, seated right now. Raise your hand in the air. Yes, I want to receive Jesus this morning. Yes, I want to commit my life to him. I want to believe in him. I want my sins forgiven. Anyone this morning, just raise your hand up right now. God bless you. Anybody else this morning? Can you stand for me, please? Anybody else this morning? You'll stand and say, I want to receive the Lord Jesus this morning and believe in him. Come on forward, would you please? What's your name, friend? Matt. Matthew. Praise the Lord, Matthew. This is Matthew, guys. We're going to pray. Pray this prayer after me, Matthew, and everyone else is going to be praying along with you. Father, I believe in your Son. I believe that he died for me. 
and that he rose from the dead. I received Jesus into my heart. Give me salvation, Lord. Please forgive my sin and enable me to live for you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. 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 Pastor Vince is going to spend some time with Matthew, just helping with some follow-up. To do the things that we all need to be doing, right? These are the things that we do to get started in the Christian life. We read the Bible every day. We fellowship with one another. We pray, and we share our faith as many times as we can with others. Amen? I learned that the day I came to Christ, and it hasn't changed. In all those years, it's still the same what we get to do. Let's stand together, shall we? May the Lord bless you and strengthen you this week, empower you, give you a sense of purpose and peace. Take advantage of opportunities God is giving you to fellowship with himself and with others. And may this week be a fruitful week for the kingdom of God. May this week be a week where the kingdom is strengthened and advanced in Santa Cruz County because of what Jesus Christ, the reigning king, is doing through his people. Amen? Amen. God bless you. The pastors are up front. We'd love to pray with you following the service. Please take advantage of that if you're so inclined. God bless you.